Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, our sense of what it means to be healthy is getting a reset. Old attitudes about the body as a machine-like device that moves within a mechanical, Newtonian universe are on the way out. They're being replaced by a nuanced sense of interconnection to all things, to each other. There's a growing appreciation that the universe is shaped by consciousness and that an open, perceptive awareness is intrinsic to our health. But for each of us, learning to maintain that level of presence does not come easy. The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you like what we're doing, you can support the show by subscribing on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Please share this episode with co-conspirators at The Coven, leave a rating on iTunes, and post about it on social media. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. It used to be thought that you could talk your way to mental health. There was psychoanalysis and other forms of talk therapy, which opened the door to the subconscious and promised to release the repressed and relieve your neurosis. Then along came the pharmaceutical industry, which promised mental health through a pill. So people started popping Prozac and Xanax and their cousins and nephews in an attempt to medicate themselves out of depressions. Then, after a generation of patients recognized that the medication was not enough, a new wave of mental health professionals began proposing lifestyle adjustments as a more effective and less physically draining form of treatment. Diet, exercise, and sleep became part of the prescription, as have practices that train you to develop your sense of presence. Yoga and meditation are starting to be embraced by mental health practitioners as cornerstones of a healthy lifestyle. That is, a spiritual connection is beginning to be appreciated as foundational to our idea of mental health. On the horizon, more powerful forms of altered states that engender unity consciousness will become part of the therapeutic toolkit. Though still in the research phase and not officially available from a licensed doctor, we're starting to see an acceptance of psychedelics and empathogens as legitimate options for treatment. Study after study shows that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is the most effective way to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, and the use of psilocybin to address end-of-life anxiety has seen remarkable results. This is only the tip of the iceberg. An expanded sense of consciousness in a controlled, supportive environment can have a profound impact on a wide range of mental health problems, including addiction and depression. 
My guest today is one of the most articulate and fearless advocates for the appropriate use of consciousness-expanding substances as part of mental health treatment. Julie Holland is a psychiatrist specializing in psychopharmacology with a private practice in New York City. In 1994, she received the Outstanding Resident Award from the National Institute of Mental Health. From 1996 until 2005, she worked weekends running Bellevue Hospital's Psychiatric Emergency Room, and she wrote an autobiography of this time, Weekends at Bellevue, Nine Years on the Night Shift at the Psych ER. Holland is the editor of Ecstasy, The Complete Guide, a comprehensive look at the risks and benefits of MDMA, and The Pot Book, a complete guide to cannabis. Her most recent book is Moody Bitches, the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. We met in Julie's Manhattan office where she sees patients and were serenaded by ambulance sirens. The consciousness movement is rewriting our sense of what it means to be healthy. Maybe you feel fine, nothing broken, no major depression, but if you don't experience a visceral sense of connection the web of existence, to source, are you as healthy as you could be? Since every human on the planet is capable of living with that plugged-in awareness, shouldn't that be the objective of mental health? After all, it's your birthright. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. 
there's an S in there, and searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. I would like to know, what does it mean to be healthy? Oh, that's a good question. So, um, well, one of the ways I really think about health is sort of wholeness. And like those those words, healthy and whole and holy, they all have sort of the same root word and they all came from the same place. So um, the idea, I think, is just sort of to be in balance, to be uh, resilient, you know, those, those things will keep you healthy. I mean, at any given time, you may have... You may have a cold or you may have some sort of inflammation somewhere, but optimally your body sort of fights it or fixes it or rebalances itself. So I think of, of health as uh, something that is sort of fluid and responsive and resilient to whatever the stressors are on it. So with mental health, you know, if you've got too many things that are bringing you down or making you anxious, you sort of can't get back up. Um, but if you are on an even keel or even footing or you're in balance, then you, then you have some flexibility or some fluidity and um, things don't overwhelm you quite so much. I love that you're giving a definition of health while we listen to the ambulance outside. Well, that's sort of like the, the I'm sure kind of, it is picked up on the mic. Yeah. And that's um, unfortunately sort of standard operating procedure coming up Third Avenue. We're not that far from Bellevue. So New York City is a stressful place to live. We've got, obviously, noise pollution, right? It's not just the sirens and the horns. It's the car alarms and people in your face. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of physical space around us. We don't have a lot of psychic space around us. We get onto the subway. Somebody's in our face. You live in a doorman building. You can't leave without saying, good morning, how are you, to several people. Um you know, when I live out in the country and there, I hear birds and hawks and occasionally eagles and, you know, wild turkeys or whatever, like those are the sounds and crickets at night and there's space. And I can think it feels really luxurious when I go home from the city and it's quiet and there's psychic space and physical space. And it, ma- it makes me realize what people in the city sort of forget about and, and put up with every day. You know, it's oh just God, sort of this yeah. baseline of stimulus. So health, does it require that kind of psychic space? Well, not all my patients can, you know, move to the country. So you you do have to create your own sort of psychic space, even though it's crowded and noisy here. And this is a reason why I often encourage people to meditate um, or, you know, to go swimming or do some sort of activity as opposed to going to a gym where you're running on a treadmill next to the other 20 people who are running on treadmills um, to to try to find a way to have some sort of space, or I, I definitely encourage people to go outside, go to the park, find a tree, find some grass, take your shoes off, yeah, try yeah. to sort of connect with the earth. Um, There's all kinds of practices you can do that can help you find your space. For sure. Find your way to space. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is health the opposite of crazy? So what mm. does crazy mean to you? That is a really good question. Yeah, there's uh, there's all sorts of definitions. I'm at, you know, I used to run the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital. So my threshold for what's really crazy is much higher 
than what other people think of as crazy. Oh, I mean, really? I, you know, I well, I mean, I I spent nine years uh, every Saturday night and Sunday night. I had a like a fifteen sixteen hour overnight shift running the psyche ER at Bellevue. So I I was sort of marinating in psychosis and people who were who were manic or schizophrenic or who were um, crack addicts or you know people who were like very very sick and like floridly psychotic. So. In, in my private practice, when people come in and, you know, they'll talk about like highs and lows um, as if they were manic or depressive episodes. But when we really start to talk about this totally just happened today where somebody is like, I don't know if I'm bipolar. I have these lows and highs. But when I started talking to them about what the highs and lows were, there was there was no real biological complaints. It was just like, you know, sometimes I feel good and I have energy for my day. And sometimes I, you know, I don't want to leave my apartment. Um, but the my sort of strict definitions for what is manic or what is depressed allow me to not uh, have a knee-jerk reaction to everybody who comes to me and just pull out my prescription pad and start writing. You know, I think people have an unrealistic idea of how happy they're supposed to be or how they're never supposed to be sad. I had one patient I've been treating for years who said to me the other day, like, maybe I'm not really depressed. You know, maybe I'm just like, a sad, sensitive person. And how do I know the difference? And the way that I I really sort of discern um, what's what is that I, I look at the biology. I look at the sort of the, the machine, you know, the hardware, not the software. Um, you could think whatever you're going to think, but the, but the real question is not just like, are you having sad thoughts or happy thoughts, but like, can you sleep? Can you eat? How is your energy level? Are you bathing? Are you taking care of yourself? Um, are you exercising? Like, you know, how how is the the animal part of you, the physical part of you, behaving and responding? When you're really depressed, like horribly clinically depressed, it's not just that you feel down, but it's that like the machine isn't working. You, your sleep is messed up. Your energy is messed up. Um, you think more slowly. Your digestion moves more slowly. Like everything gets really slowed down. So there's a straight, direct physiological connection between the mental state and the physical state, and that something that's a real problem will, from your perspective, is going to emerge in the physical. Well, if it needs to be medicated, it better have a physical component. How about that? Okay. I'll keep it sort of simple. Like in terms of treatment, um, if it's really more a question of how you're thinking and feeling, but the biology is completely intact, then I would encourage the, uh, you to find other ways to feel better that aren't necessarily prescription medication. And, you're, and often, as, a, as a psychiatrist, yeah, that's, as how, a psychiatrist, that's how you and come I, into and this. I understand that's this, not how what everyone... prescription do I write? Yeah. Right. Well, look, I, you know, I, I was a psychiatrist in, in the 90s when it was like just everybody wanted to be on meds and what med can I take and do you have any new meds and what my friend's taking this and do what do you know, what, what do you know about that? And I think we're finally coming out of that where I have people coming to me and saying, um, I've been on meds for these many years and I, I'm... I would like to slowly taper off and see how I feel and see if I really need them. And it's very complicated to come off of medicine. And it's not for everybody. Uh, but I don't want to necessarily put somebody on meds if they don't need to be on meds. A lot of times, changing your diet, changing your environment, exercising if you're not, sleeping better if you're not. Like There are things you can do to the hardware that would affect the software, let's say. Um, but yes, it's all connected. And not only are our thoughts and our physiology connected, but we are physiologically connected with each other. Um, and that we can we can regulate each other's physiology. And, you know, this is why, like, if somebody's sad, you will give them a hug. 
because if they if they hug you back and you actually hold them and they feel held, they will feel better. And they won't just feel better sort of uh, cognitively or emotionally, but they will really physically feel better that you will be sort of engendering a oxytocin release in them, which will make them feel calmer and less afraid and more connected. And they will feel more safe and held and cared for and that will not only make them feel better emotionally, but it will also make them feel better physically. There's a lot more understanding now about the connection between the food you eat, exercise, different practices like meditation, yeah. how you sleep, things like that, and how you can regulate your physiology, which affects your mental state. For sure. And the other, the other thing I would mention um, is bacteria, which is a right. whole other weird angle that we're just starting to sort of understand more now. Right, the gut biome, um, what's going right, on. In right, the belt. biome or like the gut-brain axis. Mm-hmm. Um, what did I say recently? Something called psychobiotics. Um, you know, this idea, psychobiotics? Well, this idea of using probiotics for psychiatry. Um, That's new this, to me. This idea, well, I, I wrote about it in Moody, Moody Bitches, that probiotics and taking bacteria and exposing yourself to things like dirt and bacteria can affect, can affect your mood and can affect the biology, which affects your thoughts and your emotions. So, yeah, bacteria is important. Uh, I encourage my patients to take probiotics or to eat bacteria-laden foods like kefir, kombucha, or kimchi, um, or other things that start with a K, uh, or like a, a good yogurt that isn't full of sugar or artificial sweeteners, which would be even worse than sugar, which is bad. I really encourage my patients to try to limit sugar and flour. Um, but I feel like talking about all this anti-inflammatory stuff is a little bit boring, but it is important. It's so this important. an anti-inflammatory diet and anti-inflammatory activities. So some things that are anti-inflammatory, like meditation is great for for sort of decreasing inflammation and and decreasing stress and uh, bacteria and sunshine and exercise and sleep. All these things are anti-inflammatory. And you know what else is anti-inflammatory, Ken? What is that? Cannabis is oh, anti-inflammatory. Really? Interestingly enough, Who would have and thought? for some people, it seems to help their mood slightly. I've heard that. Um, so, cannabis, THC, and CBD. Yes. So, if you don't want to get intoxicated, you don't have to. Um, but CBD is psychoactive. I, it really kind of bugs me when people say, you know, that THC well, is a psychoactive <laughs> cannabinoid, but CBD isn't. But well, depends who you talk to. Right. Well, because you and I know that CBD can really help with anxiety. Um, and and with focus, so it, you can't say it's not psychoactive. I, mean, I have patients who have switched over from taking things like Xanax and Clonopin, you know, the benzodiazepines. Now they're taking CBD. But I have other patients who have stopped taking ADD meds, stimulants like Adderall or Vyvanse, and now they're taking CBD. So clearly, CBD is psychoactive. I'm using it like crazy in my practice, but it's not intoxicating. But That's it is an anti-inflammatory. Oh, and it's anti-inflammatory. So in your practice, do you find that you are in position where you're you're helping your patients get off of meds and moving to plants and Absolutely. practices and meditation? Absolutely. And yeah. how is that working? How are they responding? It's working to great. It? I mean, uh, everybody everybody is happy. Um, I I have helped people get off pain meds and onto CBD. And I, I've helped people get off of psych meds and onto CBD. And, you know, I have a little bit of a biased population. You know, my first book was a book about MDMA. And then I did a book about cannabis and 
I wrote a book about Bellevue, and then I wrote a book for women getting off meds. So I, I certainly have a sort of a bias sample of patients who come to me because they're interested in plant medicines, or they're interested in altered states of consciousness, or they want to come off their meds. But I'm very happy to help in that process. But I have had a few people come in where I'm like, oh, no, you really, you can't get off your meds. I'm sorry. Like, you absolutely have a clear history of, you know, major depressions uh, that really require medicines. And sometimes I break the news to somebody, I really don't think you should come off of meds, but you can add CBD to what you're doing. That's not a problem. There are instances where people have real physiological issues that lead to serious psychotic behavior. Right. And that and they need to stay on meds. And they need to stay and like on people meds. who have bipolar one disorder where they get manic episodes or very bad depressive episodes, they need to stay on their mood stabilizers. Or uh, people with schizophrenia need to stay on their antipsychotics. Where it gets grayer um, is with just depression or anxiety and how bad is it? And do you really need meds? Or can we make all these other changes so that you don't need meds? But sometimes I'll put somebody on meds make all the behavioral changes, and then we can taper off the meds. So, you know, sometimes it's a little, the, it's like a bait and switch. Like, sure, we'll start with medicine, but then once you're exercising and sleeping well and eating well, we're going to pull back on the medicines and you may not need them, or you may be able to get by on, on herbal medicines or supplements, which I do a lot of. People certainly uh, now more than ever are asking about microdosing uh -huh. as a way to treat all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, my preference if someone is going to microdose is that they're not also on psychiatric meds. I think that you, you know, I you don't want to mix and match. I, I personally, I know some people are. I personally don't recommend mixing and matching. Why not? Um, well, there's not, there's no data on on what happens when you combine prescription antidepressants with psychedelics. None, because there, you're I mean, not allowed to do the research. You know, who's going to do the research? Right. Well, who's going to pay for the research? Who's going to pay for the research? Right. I mean, uh, there yeah. there are case reports on Arrowhead. If somebody wants to pay for that research, they should call you. I'm not going to be doing any research on that. Thanks. <laughs> but uh, there's there are case reports on Arrowhead or Blue Light or yes. things like that. Um, and there's I know uh, Kip Bonson at the FDA once upon a time wrote a paper about. Uh, just sort of gathering some case reports. So it looks like that if you combine lithium with psychedelics, that's really not good, and you can have a very powerful experience. And mostly, if you combine antidepressants with psychedelics, you get a muted response. Um, but it's it's pretty unpredictable. People are on combinations of a bunch of different psych meds. I just, it's a bad experiment, you know, when you've got too many variables, basically. So, like, uh, microdosing, it's still pretty new. We, we have a lot of uh, collected anecdotal data, but we certainly don't have any double-blind studies on how it works or whether it's good for some indications and not for others. But if no other um, medications are involved, from the anecdotal evidence that you've been hearing, grapevine. Um, I feel like if you're on no meds and you're microdosing every third or fourth day, it's possible that you're, you're less likely to get depressed or anxious or need your ADD meds. Uh, I'm hearing all kinds of really fascinating stories, uh, not just from microdosing. I've got patients who have quit taking opiates because they had a, a high-dose psilocybin, you know, mushroom experience. I've had patients quit taking pain meds because they've had a, an ayahuasca experience. Um, I've had patients have good experiences with ketamine, although ketamine, it seems like it just doesn't last. 
Uh, oh, is that I think, true? Yeah, I haven't heard I that. I feel like for a lot of people, like they get a robust response and then it goes away and then they need another treatment. And some people have a handful of treatments and that's it. But um, my general sense of it is that it may not um, have the same sort of staying power as some of the other psychedelics. Why do you think that is? Well, it's very, very different. I don't know if you, you know, qualitatively, uh, you know, a ketamine experience is very different from from ayahuasca or psilocybin. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all so different they're, from each other. And then, I mean, not yeah. only are they different from each other, ayahuasca is different from itself. I think it's like <laughs> the most variable, least predictive. Like a lot of people with high dose mushrooms, they have, a, they usually have a, an okay time. It's manageable, you know, usually only lasts about four hours mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to LSD where it can go on to like 10, 12 hours and, you know, you're done, but the drug's not done with you. So I think in general, it seems like mushroom experiences are more uh, malleable or more amenable to just having a, a good experience. Ayahuasca, I feel like it's just a complete new roll of the dice every time uh, where a person could have like five or six experiences and they are just five or six completely different experiences. Right, which is not necessarily happened. because of the the actual, the difference in what you're drinking is just, I mean, it just I've, takes you in many different places depending right. on the and, situation and like some, or where you're at. Right, where you're at really matters. And, you know, sometimes you vomit, sometimes you don't, sometimes you are like running to the bathroom to not vomit and do other things and sometimes you're not. And some, you know, I was saying to somebody, at some point, most of us will end up sort of curled up in a ball, either physically or psychically, you know, like it can be a tortured night of the soul. It can be very challenging and difficult. Um, as opposed to say MDMA, uh, which for many people like feels pretty good. Like you, you may be digging through some very traumatic issues, but, uh, you know, you're not vomiting. You don't, you don't have diarrhea. You're, you're, you know, it's just, I think it could be a little bit more comfortable and pleasant. Um, there, I'm not, this is not a competition. <laughs> I know there's, well, there's pe- room for them all. And there, and there, you know, certain people at certain times would do better with some medicines than others. Um, and it, you know, I, I love it when they're plant medicines. I always feel sort of bad that MDMA isn't a plant medicine, um, because I like to talk about plant medicines because that sounds so benign. But Kana, like it's a plant. Kana doesn't do you it know? for you. Or like, there's a couple of things that are kind of close. Um, or like. Sassafras. Sassafras. Or, right. I was looking for that. Yeah. Yes. Not exactly the little same. Different. A little different. little um, different. Are there something called like white lily or something? I, I think ne- that is I supposed to be like MDMA. Yeah. Or blue lily. I'm not sure. Um, but the heart openers, there are various heart it, openers. That's a very, very good point. So I, I definitely consider um, MDMA to be like a massive heart opener. And not only that, but it really increases oxytocin. So you get this dampening of the amygdala, the fear center in the brain is sort of quieted. So um, it's not just open-hearted, maybe sort of like open-minded, like you're just more open to things. And uh, one of the things that Catherine McLean saw when she did the Hopkins psilocybin studies um, was, was changes in people's level of openness. And it turns out that in the MDMA research, we're seeing a, an increase in openness. And I know Robin Carhart Harris, who does the psilocybin workout at Imperial College in in, in the UK, um, he he talks not just about openness or um, 
but he talks about sort of people being more liberal, like, you know, the openness affecting their political views, which I think is really interesting. And then there's studies showing— Wait, I'm sorry, he's tracking that? Well, there are, there are definitely people who are making these statements now that, you know, mushrooms will make you less of a fascist, <laughs> basically. Um, and I think that if you think about it in terms of openness versus fear— um, it does sort of make sense. I mean, it, I mean, to, to me, it makes so much intuitive sense. Yeah, and the, the but other, you never hear anybody talk about this because politics yeah. really do does, in so many ways, come down to how comfortable are you with ambiguity? How afraid of you are? How, how afraid are you of the other? Of the other, exactly, exactly. I mean, this is something I'm writing about in my new book. This this idea of openness and us versus them and empathy and things like that. So um, the other thing that you see with with psilocybin is that people are more attentive to environmental issues, that not only do they sort of open their hearts up to each other, but they want to sort of tend and befriend the planet as well as people around them. So I'm, you know, well, you know, that's there's a important. There's a reason for that <laughs> because the plants are talking to you. Um, and I also think that cannabis is, is a heart opener. You know, the cannabis talks to you, and I definitely feel like, like me with nature. Um, so I think in terms of like what will save us, like what's healthy for us or what's healthy for our relationships or what's healthy for the planet, I would say plant medicines. You've had And MDMA. And MDMA. <laughs> Got to get that in there. Right. Especially because it's on the verge of becoming legal. Right. So uh, You've known Rick Doblin a long I've time. I've known Rick Doblin for 34 years this summer. So like 33 years. Yeah. And Rick Doblin is, you may as well say it rather than me. So he is sort of a president and chief bottle washer of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they are funding the phase three multi-center trials, um, looking at whether MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can be a good treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. So, and I've been the medical monitor for the MDMA PTSD studies for years and years and years, and I wanted to be one of the one of the medical monitors for the phase three trial. And I'm happy to say that I am. I really enjoy doing that kind of work for MAPS. I think it's really important. Work MDMA for PTSD works better than any other medicine that we have available in psychiatry. And Rick, you can correct what me. What can I'm we wrong. say about Rick? Well, Rick, I mean, oh my <laughs> God, Rick, what a beautiful soul. Rick is, in many ways, the architect of a strategy. Yes. To bring MDMA and psychedelics back into the currents of of of, of Western life yeah by framing them within uh, a medical paradigm right I think so that, that is well put okay. the thing the thing I always say about Rick is uh, you know he he sort of reminds me of like a toddler on a tricycle wearing a helmet who keeps smashing his head into a brick wall and slowly over the years the brick wall has finally been cracking and crumbling I mean he's uh, it's been a very long road, you know, since the mid-80s. I mean, he's been indefatigable and sort of single-minded, and this is his purpose, and he's going to get it done. Um, and I really, really respect what he's done. And no no head, tra no head trauma, as far as I can tell. But no he's head trauma. Just, you know, he's just kind of battering, you know, it's been, it's oh, been yeah. a really long, long road. And, I, you know, I always sort of joke, uh, not always, but I used to joke with him even more about this, of like sort of like, 
you know, are you watching your cholesterol? How's your blood pressure? Because like this is a long game, you know, and we're, this is not instant gratification. It's going on a long time. And obviously there's been momentum really building up in the last few years. And, you know, there's some stumbles recently uh, that are sort of a little controversial, like taking money from the Mercer Foundation was kind of a big deal or like what's going on now with Compass Pathways where there are people uh, trying to develop psilocybin as sort of a more uh, capitalistic, I think, there are good conversations that people having are having about, you know, how do we do this in a way that uh, doesn't marginalize any more people? I mean, unfortunately, if you look at the clinical studies, they tend to be not people of color m- more often than not. And, you know, one of the things that, that MAPS was really trying to do, um, they had a whole site that was devoted to MDMA PTSD in marginalized populations. Unfortunately, that site got shut down. How did so, it get shut down? I think that, uh, and this happens a lot sort of at any university, uh, people are really gun-shy about having MDMA research happen in their backyard. I mean, when I I was in Washington when FDA told Charlie Grobe, yes, you can do your study, and it was like 90, early 90s. I, w- I went back to my chairman of my department at, at, you know, the chairman of psychiatry at Mount Sinai, and I, I got a meeting with him. I'm like, I'm like this medical, and this resident coming in and be like, you know, we need to do MDMA research. They're doing it out at UCLA. FDA just approved it. We got to, you know, this is important. We have to get on it. And he was just like, you want to give ecstasy to what? You know, there was just no, not in my backyard. No way is it going to happen here. And when Michael Midhoffer was down at Medical University of South Carolina, they wouldn't allow it to happen there. He had to go off center and just do it in his private practice. So um, there's, there's, you know, there's baggage to these medicines or to these drugs, and it's hard to get. It's all like kind of not in my backyard with. Well, this has been institutional you know. approval, and so I think that that was basically. Uh, that's a long answer for what I think happened in Connecticut. Um, but if you ever want to talk to Monica Williams, I imagine she would give you um, an even longer and probably much more accurate uh, explanation of what happened there. There's a shift going on. There's an attitude. There's absolutely shift an attitudinal shift. And I know Michael Pollan has really helped uh, to move everything forward. You know, he he really has brought the the discussion of psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy into the mainstream quite a bit. So that was helpful. There was like a like kind of an Ibogaine storyline in, in Homeland, or there was some Ben Stiller movie that, you know, had an ayahuasca yeah, ceremony. No, it's, it's, so, I mean, it's sort of you know, sprinkling it's, into the mainstream more more. culture it's for sure, and the pop culture for sure. Right. And um, that makes it less threatening and less other. Um, and more likely, and I also think that the, you know, this is efficacy-driven, where the data is going to... Uh, push everything forward. You know, the the data is strong. Like this, the data are strong. Excuse me. (laughs) I got to get that right. Don't email me. I know it's plural. I think that the more you see the numbers of, you know, 70% of people are cured, 80% of people quit smoking cigarettes with psilocybin, 70, 80% of people who did MDMA, PTSD therapy, don't have don't meet criteria for PTSD anymore. You know, you start seeing these numbers of people that are being helped, uh, that high-dose psilocybin seems to be helping depression. It helps end-of-life anxiety. You know, you see that people get better and stay better. That kind of efficacy is going to just push everything forward. It's the same thing that's happening with, with cannabis and CBD. It's, you know, it's efficacy-driven wellness. Like, people are getting better. You know, you have arthritis, and you put a CBD salve on your knee, and your knee stops hurting, and you're like, oh, my God, 
why isn't everybody using this? And this is amazing. This and is so, what's happening. People are seeing that it yeah, works. And it works. it's actually, you know, like propagating a valuable, like, you know, truth telling about yeah. these plants that is affecting policy. And it's going to, and, right. you know, and, and, you know, frankly, if you look around, and you know this a lot better than I do, when you look around at the higher echelons now of these institutions where they're acting as gatekeepers. Right. More and more of those people have real experience themselves. Exactly right. As as the sort of older people who have who have no sense of it age out, the younger people who do have a sense of it, who know that it's not so terrible, are coming into roles of, of power for sure. Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So Rick's strategy really focuses on this medicalization of psychedelics in the therapeutic context. Right. And of MDMA. But in my world, there's less talk about that. Right. And more talk about how those plant medicines open up a connection to something much larger than the self. Right. That is extraordinarily powerful but also can put some people into some pretty challenging territory because things open up so fast. Right, for sure. And then there's a certain, you know, kind of inflation of self that can come along with that. Fear, breaks, psychosis, like all kinds of stuff. And I'm wondering, when somebody comes to you and says, essentially, you know, I'm Jesus Christ, which can happen in those situations— when do you know that that person is or isn't? <laughs> is, is or isn't Jesus? Isn't is or well, Jesus look, I mean, or that's, that's sort schizophrenic? Of bringing me back to the to the Bellevue days. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that we had at Bellevue, which was a real luxury, is that we could keep somebody for 72 hours and see how they looked over the course of two or three days. Like I had, I had a guy pretty early on in my time at Bellevue, I had somebody come in who everyone thought was manic in a manic episode because he was on a street corner giving away his wallet, his watch, his shoes, you know, divest yourself of your worldly possessions. And he's sort of, you know, like evangelizing on the street corner or proselytizing. And so he gets picked up and brought to Bellevue. But over the course of the night, he was saying all sorts of things about how everything is connected and it all makes sense now. But then at some point he said, Cosm. <laughs> and ah. I was like, oh, this guy's not manic. Let's just wait and see how he looks tomorrow. And Cosm like, you being, know, Cosm mean, is. Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. This was back when it was in Manhattan. Right. He had been at Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Which is and the Alex taken, Gray and Alison Alex Gray. Alex Gray and Alison uh, gallery that was in New York City and is now up, uh, up in Dutchess County, up where I live, which is lovely to have them so close. Um, so he sort of, I wrote about this actually in Weekends at Bellevue about this guy and you know, he eventually started to like come down and realize that 
that he was at Bellevue and had to sort of prove his sanity to get out, which is, you know, a bit of a flip. But he was not manic. He was tripping. And usually just by looking at somebody's pupils, you can, you know, when someone's tripping, their pupils are dilated. And when someone is manic, their their pupils aren't usually dilated. Although I did have a few people in the ER who are manic, whose pupils are dilated. So I think that just being in that opened, heightened state, you have a lot of adrenaline, your pupils are going to be big. Um, so you can't always just tell based on that. But uh, in terms but, of, you know, whether somebody thinks they're Jesus or not, I mean, you know, at Bellevue, we would sometimes have two people in one weekend who thought they were Jesus. And, you know, the joke was like to, you know, put them in a room together and let them duke it out, you know. <laughs> I don't typically get that in this office, but I will say that psychedelics can be destabilizing. They're most destabilizing for people who have a history of psychotic illness already, who are bipolar, who who can get manic on their own chemistry. You're going to be more likely to get into those troublesome areas uh, with something destabilizing. Uh, it's not necessarily going to make someone bipolar on its own. You know, like you're already bipolar, you just didn't know it, sort of. Um, but it's they're qualitatively different. The sort of the sort of epiphany and everything is connected and it all makes sense. And you know, I'm I'm sort of jacked into all of it. That kind of feeling. It's not exactly what you get when somebody is schizophrenic or manic. So I think there is sort of qualitative differences to to psychosis versus a sort of like awakened. You know, um, but sometimes it's tricky to know, and sometimes it's both. Sometimes there are people who who have psychiatric illnesses, who are taking psychedelics. So, um, But then there's also, in my experience of you know, knowing schizophrenics, who, or people who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic, who also were doing work with plant medicine, they can get insight. They can have a connection that's an authentic connection in the midst of their psychosis. Yeah. That's when it gets really tricky. Well, one of the things I'm really interested in, but it's too early to do it, but down the road I would like this to happen, um, is to see what happens to somebody who has schizophrenia who's not on any medicines. What happens if they take MDMA? Um, I wrote about this in the in Ecstasy, the Complete Guide, because I had I was in touch with a handful of people who had a history of schizophrenia who had a complete temporary resolution of their symptoms when they took MDMA. And so I became very interested in like, why, why is that? Why did all your symptoms go away? Like it stopped the voices, it stopped the paranoia. I had insight into my illness for the first time. So with phase two, phase three research, everyone is very carefully screened. And if they have a history of psychosis, they're not included in the studies and things like that. So um, we're working with people who are less likely to have real problematic responses. But down the line, once these medicines are approved for things like depression or PTSD, um, I will certainly be curious to see what they can do um, for certain kinds of people with certain kinds of schizophrenia, because schizophrenia is not really one thing. Um, and the same way that cancer isn't really one thing. It's sort of a blanket term that describes some different syndromes. Um, but it may be that people who, who've got something called like negative symptom schizophrenics, uh, where they don't think very much. They don't talk very much. They don't have a lot of like motivation to do much. They're just kind of sitting around. You know, they're not uh, ranting, raving, hallucinating. They're they've got more negative symptoms than positive symptoms. Those people may do really well with MDMA. Uh, years and years ago, they would give those types of patients amphetamine, and they did pretty well. So why'd they stop? Uh, 
That's a good question. I think, you know, you get tolerant to the effects. It didn't work long-term, but it worked acutely. And even, I'm not suggesting MDMA for schizophrenia chronically. I'm suggesting that uh, an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session for somebody who doesn't have much insight into their illness or who is too paranoid to allow much uh, deep empathic communication to go on, that even just having three or four hours where their symptoms are in check and they can open up a little bit and and talk and maybe have a strengthened therapeutic alliance with their with their therapist or with their family, like anything like that could be helpful. But that research is a way off. Yeah. I'm wondering how for from your perspective, how important this psycho spiritual aspect of working through personal issues is in working towards your own personal mental health. Right. So I think for for people who don't have sort of a major psychiatric issue, I think what you're talking about is crucial to being healthy, is to kind of work through your shit and get more in touch with your shadow side and the things that you're repressing. You know, we spend a lot of psychic energy trying not to feel a certain way or act a certain way. Um, yeah, I have some patients who are, they sort of are labeled depressives. And I, I honestly think that part of it is that they just can't allow themselves to just sort of be sad and fully feel sad or grieve. And so it gets sort of stuck. Um, not everybody, but some people, I think that's the issue. And so, um, it's nice now that at least ketamine is, is legal and available and I can send somebody to do some work, um, you know, to have a ketamine session or two just, uh, as a way to sort of start to explore a little bit of their shadow side or, or to get in touch with some of their roadblocks, things like that. I think that most of us can benefit from soul searching and, you know, doing a, a real thorough inventory and figuring out what, what we're doing, you know, yeah. and how we sort of go in circles. And I mean, one of the ways I describe it sometimes is if you're playing video game, Sometimes you can see a macro of like the entire board of the game or, you know, whatever environment you're in. And like you may be sort of just in one little corner going around circles because you don't realize like this is the way out and then you're then there's the whole rest of the game. But like if you pull out and see the macro, you're like, oh, my God, I've just been like butting my head around just going around circles. So, yeah, well, I so think there's often a lot of resistance to seeing that whole game. Yeah. And the society doesn't necessarily help you see all of that. No, we're not. We're not set up to encourage. First of all, any kind of real introspection. Um, I think we're. I think we're getting a little better. You know, at understanding. If nothing else, we are certainly starting to accept that um, how we feel and what our sort of intrapsychic conflicts are affects our bodily functioning, and vice versa. You know that there. I think. I mean, when I was when I was an undergrad, this whole idea of like mind body medicine, you know, or like psychoneuroimmunology or whatever, like these were like brand new words and brand new ideas that, and to me it was like, of course, of course, but not no, not everybody else thought, of course, of course, and you know there was no talk when I went to medical school, there was nothing about the endocannabinoid system, there was nothing about the this whole sort of interface, you know, between how you're doing spiritually and how you're doing physically. And now I think people really understand that. I'm seeing, they accept it. They don't understand it. Oh, well, does anybody understand it? Uh, not fully, but, um, but I think that there are, there are aspects to it that are, you know, the brain and the body are 
super crazy complicated. And it's like, the more you look, the more you see how complicated it is. And um, unfortunately, you know, it turns out that like cannabis and the endocannabinoid system is really complicated. So every, every time, you know, if it weren't complicated, then we wouldn't be smart, I guess. <laughs> but um, I think it's, it will take a long time to sort of untangle all the, all the pieces. I've been seeing a lot more people opening up to some kind of interest in spirituality. Yeah. As part of like, you know, often for people, it just sort of shows up in an unexpected way. It's like it kind of, it might be through some psychedelic experience. It might just be in their yoga class. Suddenly they're seeing light in the middle of the class when their eyes are closed. And I'm wondering if that's showing up on your radar and how that might be affecting the way we think of mental health and what it is to be a healthy person. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, it is slowly, it is slowly sort of coming to pass. I mean, um, a few years ago I started, I think when I was really, when I was researching Moody Bitches, I started really um, putting quotes around certain phrases that I was writing over and over. And I finally went back and like deleted the quotes, but it was like, like if I say, feed your soul, I would put that in quotes, you know, like little, and if I was talking in my office about somebody and I'd be like, well, you know, is there anything that really feeds your soul? And I would like put my fingers up, you know, like Mike Myers, like little air quotes. Um, I don't, I don't use the air quotes anymore. I, you know, I've t- I took the quotes out of the book. Like, I think, I think people, uh, I, I still am like get a little uncomfortable or like almost embarrassed if I start talking to somebody about spiritual things or soulful things in my office, because they're coming to see a medical doctor, um, you know, for the, an evaluation or consultation, you know, for psychiatric complaints. So, um, you know, I don't want to get all kind of, I say crunchy granola, you know, but I think, I think that it is more accepted, you know, more of us are doing yoga, more people are talking about mindfulness. I talk to my patients a lot now about just like, turn off your phone, you know, have it in a different room from like, just be alone with your thoughts for five or 10 minutes and just, stop scrolling for a second. You know, I think so many of us now, like we don't, we can't stand like boredom or any kind of discomfort. And we're, and we have got this like ready made distracting machine. You know, we're all just kind of scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And the reason why you kind of scroll and don't stop, um, you know, Gabor Mate has this great quote I love. He says, I hope it's Gabor because I keep attributing it to him. Um, Gabor, was this you? Uh, he, he says, or someone like him says, uh, you can never get enough of something that almost works, you know? And I think that like with social media, like we want to feel connected and, you know, we want to feel sort of hooked in and held and safe and cared for. And we get a little bit of that, you know, from Facebook or Instagram where we feel a little connected or a little, a little held, but not really It's not held, the real held. connection. It's not the real thing. There's no eye contact. There's no skin to skin. There's no pheromones. There's no sort of, you know. There's no deep sense of being understood. Taking in another person's like aura or electromagnetic frequencies or, you know, there's nothing physical. It's just totally kind of cerebral mm-hmm. um, and surf- surfacey sort of emotional stuff. So, you know, like uh, tear jerking kind of stuff. So um, we're not getting what we need at all. And in the process of scrolling and scrolling and not getting what we need, 
we are physically separated from each other and we're even physically separated from ourselves. You know, we're sort of out of our body and just into our heads and um, it's really crappy for like your posture or your safety when you're walking down the street. I mean, there's just, there's lots of reasons why I'm, I'm nudging my patients to try to disconnect and try to turn off your phone. And for God's sake, just buy an alarm clock. Do not have it in next to your bed so that if you wake up for a minute, you're already checking, checking, you know? And like, I don't know how many of us can just like go to the bathroom without taking our phones with us. You know, like I'm, I feel like I'm No like, way. I don't do that ever. <laughs> good for you. Um, um, so how important is it for a doctor to do their own spiritual work? That's a good question. There, there's no setup at all in medical school, at least when I went. Um, where you have to sort of dig through your own shit. And at, at least in psychiatry, they encourage you to be in therapy or to have gone through therapy at some point so that you at least know like where your buttons are so that you won't get into transference or countertransference with patients where you're sort of projecting your, your demons onto them. Um, but it's not a requirement. You don't have to do it or you won't graduate. So um, it should be. Encouraged. It is a big deal. Um, I hope that in the future, as physicians get trained, they will realize that that really is an important piece of the puzzle. And um, well, so you know, I kind of I kind of bring it up partially because I'm not sure to ask you about your own practice or your own work, and that the, and just knowing you, I can just say this: there's a understanding that in this profession. Certain things that are real experiences, maybe you're not going to share necessarily because if you do that, you're kind of undermining your role as the professional who's got the position of knowledge and authority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, it's a fine line to walk because I am still, you know, uh, running a business, which is unfortunately the way that American medicine is. Um, any therapist or psychiatrist is they're running a business. So, um, there, yeah, I agree in terms of, you know, keeping some semblance of authority um, that I, I can't fully disclose. On the other hand, I spend a lot of time when I speak in public saying how important it is for people um, to sort of either own it or fix it. And that, you know, if you can, uh, I mean, I sort of think of like Harvey Milk, right? Like, um, the way to get gay rights was for all the gay people to stand up and be like, I want my rights, you know, and I think that that's kind of true with drug taking is like if, you know, if we want things to be legalized, we need to actually out ourselves and say, you know, I'm using this and it's not so terrible. And maybe, you know, I don't want to I don't want to have to go to jail for this or I don't want to have to be embarrassed or ashamed of this. You know, there's a lot of shame that gets built into our drug policy, that because things are illegal, we have to hide them. And then because we're hiding them, we have to have shame about them. And then because we have shame, we have to medicate ourselves. And so our drug policy is sort of turning us into addicts. You know, Because we have to hide things, there's more adrenaline, things get more fetishized, there, there's no modeling of healthy behavior, there's no sharing. Um, <clears throat> so uh, everything gets sort of more extreme when it has to be hidden. Right, but at the same and time, and the drugs get more potent because they have to be hidden. So you know, if if our drug policy changed, um, our behavior would change, or if our behavior changes, our drug policy will change. But this is a long roundabout way of saying that um, I do encourage people to out themselves when they can. I think it's important. Like I, you know, I'm a cannabis 
user. I'm a pot smoker. Um, and I, uh, and I'm a soccer mom and, you know, I vote, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, I just think from a political point of view, um, if people can out themselves, it helps move everything along because it, it takes it out of the shadows. It normalizes the behavior. And it also gives, uh, us a chance to model healthy behavior for other people. You know, it's it's not fair if the only model of a cannabis use is Cheech and Chong, right? Oh God, of course, yeah. Um, there are not many psychiatrists, even among those who have a personal relationship to psychedelics or cannabis, who bring it into their professional work in a public way. It's um, it's a rare thing, right? So I'm assuming that you must have had a moment when you were doing your your professional preparation, whether it was in medical school or after, where you made a decision. I'm going to do this differently. Yeah, I don't know. I think <clears throat> I've been doing things differently since I was very young. Um, I, you know, when I was a I was a real tomboy when I was younger and I was very kind of provocative and outspoken, outspoken. I smoked cigarettes. <laughs> I was literally like a 10 year old girl with like a denim jacket with the collar up and a cigarette out of her mouth. Like I, I was like a, like a James Dean wannabe when I was a little girl. Um, and I, I was always kind of tough and rebellious and I, I always wanted to do things my way anyway. So, um, well, I worked at Bellevue and but because I was sort of just working weekends, I got to kind of do my own thing and be my own person. You know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was going to meetings all the time or there was a lot of like corporate structure or anything like that. I could just come in, do my shift, be a cowboy and leave. Um, and then after that, I just did private practice. So, and right now I'm not affiliated, you know, I was like a assistant professor of clinical psychiatry, NYU School of Medicine, you know, back when I was at Bellevue. But now, <clears throat> I don't have any faculty affiliation. I don't, I'm not really beholden, uh, besides Jeremy, my husband, I'm not really beholden to any sort of, you know, person or institution. You know, I don't have to run anything by somebody. I don't have a boss. Um, so it's it's been really liberating for me to just be able to speak my mind. And this, this kind of circles back to something I want to talk about, about, about how important it is to feel connected to other people or how important it is to feel whole. One of the things that can keep us healthy is just is having this kind of integrity where we are walking the talk, you know, where we, where where there's like an emotional integrity where you think for a minute about how am I feeling about this, and then you say calmly how you're feeling about something, you know, feel your feelings, convey your feelings, um, have some honor, you know, and and when you you know honor is like the the counterforce of shame, if you own it. You know, and this is the idea behind like, uh, you know, either own it or fix it, you know, so that you have some sort of integrity and honor and authenticity. You know, this is me and I accept me and who I am and what I do. And that sort of thing will keep you healthy and whole, that you're not uh, split off or divided off or disowning parts of yourself. Do you feel you have a personal relationship to cannabis as a plant, as a spirit? Um I don't, I don't know. Uh, I certainly have a relationship. I've got, uh, I've, I have had a longer relationship with cannabis than, you know, my husband who I, we've been married 20 years. We've known each other like almost 25 years. So, uh, 
I mean, I, I started smoking pot when I was like 12 or 13. And, you know, I may have taken off a year here and there because I got pregnant or I don't know. Uh, there was, I think there was like a year or two. So like in high school, maybe where I didn't smoke or something, but you know, I, I, uh, I have a longstanding good relationship with cannabis. Um, I, I love now that people are really seeing it, uh, in terms of sort of health maintenance, because that's something I've been talking about for a really long time. I remember sort of vividly pretty soon after I started to understand, uh, what CBD had to offer. And I was talking to, um, a producer from Sanjay Gupta's show. Um, and I just, I remember that conversation. Like it felt important to me that I was going to sort of teach Sanjay about CBD. And I love that he taught America about CBD. Um, it makes me really happy. And it makes me really happy that like New York is going legal. Like I, you know, I know this is, or like that I'm speaking at Esalen soon. Like I have this sense of like, okay, my work is done here. Like, you know, I did that. Like I, I wanted, there were things I really wanted to bring uh, to the world or to America or something. And, and cannabis is one of them. And MDMA is another one. And I, I'm, I'm thrilled that, you know, how far we've gotten now. And it is, and I do have this sense. Oh, like, but we're not done. That I don't, well, yeah, but I may be a little bit done. <laughs> like, <laughs> no way. Yes. Well, you know, when I talk to younger people who are, you know, planning on doing research with, with MDMA and autism or MDMA schizophrenia, and I'm like, good, if you do it, I don't have to do it. And that's great. You know, I, I do am, I mean, I am only, I'm only 53. I know I'm not like done, done. You're a child. But I, but I do have the sense that, um, I don't know, I, I'm not that my work is done, but that um, I've had really good return on my investment. And I love that. But then, I mean, you can also see it as we're entering into a new moment, a new era. Yes. That there's something there's a shift that's happening. There's absolutely a shift that's happening. And it's not only around the legal <clears throat> framework. No, right? things are absolutely shifting for it's, sure. It's a yeah. shift in our understanding of what it is to be a person in relationship to the planet yes. that is offering these plants and these different modalities that are that can open us up so we can feel connection. Yeah, for sure. So um, the next book that I'm working on, and hopefully the last book that I'm working on, because I really don't think I'm gonna, <laughs> I just, I can't imagine writing anymore after this. Although I did get a great idea for a book the other day, which really pissed me off because I, I don't want to, I don't want to do anymore. Um, I'm writing a book now that is about, about oneness and connection um, and all those things that you're talking about <clears throat> and how we're sort of not, not getting it in some of the ways that we're looking and where we could be getting it. Um, and then I just had this idea for, um, I've, I've published four books now and two of them were edited where like other people wrote chapters and I also wrote chapters and I put it together, but I didn't write the whole book. And I may, um, I really might want to do something about the, the women of psychedelia and sort of the, the, the sort of unsung stories of all the women, because I feel like, uh, the, the men are getting a certain amount of attention. And I I love Michael Pollan. He's a good man. And I liked, I thought he did a good job in the book. And it's hard to write a book, I will tell you. It is really hard. And he did a great job. But one of the complaints that I heard from, you know, my my psychedelic women friends is like, you know, where are the women? You know, it's just like, it's a lot of dudes. So um, I may want to try to put something together where like maybe each, each woman that I know, you know, there's some women who've been, uh, doing this for decades who deserve like a little bit of glory or attention and if they're willing to and write. have real insight and yeah. actually can offer a somewhat different perspective a different perspective I think yes. that would be a very powerful thing so maybe Julie thanks so much you're really very very this. welcome this is great really enjoyed this conversation where can people find you 
uh, nowhere. I'm, I don't want to be found. I'm busy working on my book. <laughs> Leave me alone. Do not find me. That's where you can find me. <laughs> You're not even on the internet. I don't want to be approached. Um, I, I have, a, I have a website, drholland.com. You know, I, I am on Facebook. I'm, I, I tweet every once in a while, which is Bellevue Doc. Um, but yeah, don't. I'm busy. <laughs> don't find me. <laughs> Talk to me when my book's turned in. We'll see. Thanks so much for taking the rare hour here for us, and I appreciate it. My pleasure. I want to thank Julie Holland for being a guest on the show, and thank you, too, for joining us. Despite what she says, you can find out more about Julie at our website, naturalmood.com, which is basically a site for the Moody Bitches book, but seems totally relevant today. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.